our series in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. He asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray that we will stand in wonder and amazement at a God who would condescend and reach out His hand to needy people. Father, we are needy people. We are among the the cripples, the blind and the lame. And You have reached out Your hand to us. Father, even this morning, would You extend Your hand to us? Would You minister to us? Would You lift us up so that we could be strong, so that we would live lives that would glorify You. Father, work mightily through Your inspired, authoritative Word. And we ask this boldly and confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. After Jesus rose from the dead, He gave His disciples the Great Commission. He commanded them to make disciples of all nations. However, before they were to embark on this mission, they were to remain in Jerusalem until they had received the promise from the Father, namely the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once they were clothed with power from on high, then they could start on the mission that was assigned to them. When the day of Pentecost arrived, all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter preached his first sermon. It was an evangelistic message. He was presenting the Gospel and as we said the last couple of weeks, it had basically four, four points. And it all related to Jesus. Peter began by talking about the life and ministry of Christ. And then he talked about the death of Christ. And then he talked about the resurrection of Christ. And then he talked about the ascension of Christ where He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where He reigns as the present and living Lord of all creation. Peter proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he called upon his listeners that day to repent and be baptized. And about 3,000 did. And immediately, they were added 
to the church. Now, we see their participation in the church in verses 42 to 47. Uh, we didn't look at those verses last week because we looked at them about a couple months ago when we were talking about the life of the church. Uh, because this passage really is a seminal passage when it comes to what the church is about because we're told specifically what the church was devoted to. And they were devoted to four things, essentially. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread or communion, and prayer. And I think we should note that basically when one becomes a Christian, uh, three steps happen right away. When he becomes a Christian, there is repentance. There is turning away from sin. And then there is baptism. Uh, this is the second step. And it usually happens right away. And as you read through Acts, uh, people are baptized. As soon as they become Christians, uh, they are told to be baptized. And then, following right on the heels of that, we basically have church membership. And that's what we see in Acts 2. Peter calls upon them to repent and be baptized they do, and then right after they do, we're told that they're devoted to the church. And I think it's fascinating that commitment to the local church was immediate, earnest, and central. Um, immediately, they were a part of the church, and they were earnest about their involvement in the church. They even sold property to help out their brothers and sisters. And the church was central to their lives. It wasn't something on the side. It was central. Their lives revolved around the church. They gathered together every day as believers, probably because of the difficult times that they were going through. So this is important. They were committed to the church. But, let me also add, they were not just devoted to the holy huddle. And here I think it's important to avoid two extremes. Um, at one extreme, you have people who are just running into battle and they're even sending their children into battle before they're ready. They're just saying, we have a mission and they're just they're running out there and they're not ready. We have to be careful. Sometimes you have to withdraw for a time. Uh, sometimes adults even have to withdraw for a time. I have admitted to many people that when I first became a Christian, um, I had to withdraw from the world for a time because I wasn't strong enough to be a witness out there. They were a witness to me. So I had to back off uh, for a while. Um, on the other extreme, uh, at one end you have those who just plunge right into the world. On the other hand, you have at the other end, the other extreme, those who isolate themselves. Um, we're just going to be by ourselves and we're just going to be with our Christian friends. And they don't rub shoulders with unbelievers. And this is very typical. Statistics often say that many Christians, after a couple of years, have hardly any non-Christian friends. And I think we need to keep in mind that we have a mission. We have a great commission to fulfill. Um, we'd love to talk about Psalm 127. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. But notice what verse 4 says. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Um, children are a blessing. We are seeking to have as many children as we can. We want our quivers to be bursting at the seams. 
But for what purpose? So that we can put them in the bow and so that we can send them out into the world so that they can do damage, if you will, for the kingdom of God. Uh, we are training warriors for Jesus Christ. So that they will go out and testify wherever they go and advance the kingdom of God. So we're not just having children so we can make the kingdom of God bigger, but we're having children so we can make the kingdom of God bigger and have more warriors who can do service in the kingdom of God. So we need to keep that very clear in mind. Well, no sooner is a new covenant church established and we see the church moving beyond the four walls. Uh, excuse me, Luke describes what happens within the church, but then he also describes the church going out from beyond the four walls, taking the show on the road, if you will. And this shouldn't be surprising because the Great Commission does include the word go. Go and make disciples. Not just stay in the church, but go. Verse 1 sets up the scene. Now Peter and the John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. You'll notice that they were going to the temple. At this point, the Christians had not broken away from the Jews. Um, They were still worshiping at the temple with other Jews. Um, This also provided a great opportunity of witness. Um, We're also told that it was the hour of prayer, um, which means Peter and John uh, were just going to the temple to pray. Um, They weren't seeking to heal a lame man. Uh, They were just going about their business, if you will. And I think that's very important. Because often we'll have an agenda. It'll be a certain hour. and Okay, I have to do this or I have to go to that place. And unbeknownst to us, God will have a divine appointment just waiting for us. And maybe we don't know it, but if we are open, we never know what God may have for us just going to the grocery store, just going to get our hair cut, just going wherever it might be. Also notice that it was the ninth hour. Now, here's the question I asked. Why is that little minute detail added? Um, We're told that it was the hour of prayer, and then we're told it was the ninth hour. Uh, Perhaps, and this is another one of these places, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but perhaps to remind us of the connection with Jesus' death. Jesus hung on the cross and from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the sky went dark and at three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, Jesus said, it is finished. And perhaps this is Luke's subtle way of reminding us that what's about to take place with the healing of this lame man is made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, there's an interesting passage in Matthew I'd like you to look at if you have your Bible. Matthew 8, 14-17. And it has to do with healing. Matthew 8, 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, He saw His mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then notice what Matthew says. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And this is in Isaiah 53. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Um, there are a couple different interpretations of healing, and I disagree with both of them. On one hand, you have charismatics, not all charismatics, but you have some who say that because of the death of Christ, He has secured our healing. Therefore, we can expect to be healed of whatever ailment, whatever disease, whatever sickness we may have. I don't agree with that. Uh, God does not heal all our diseases. And the truth is, we are all sick. We all have a terminal illness. And, sorry to give you the bad news, we are all going to die someday. So if you just look at it honestly, none of us is completely cured. So I don't agree with that interpretation. I believe it's too extreme. But I also believe at the other end, you have another extreme interpretation, usually by Reformed folks, who say, no, we don't have physical healing in the cross. We have spiritual healing in the cross. But look at this passage very clearly. He healed all who were sick. Physically sick. And we just had the example of Peter's mother-in-law who was healed. So the context of this passage is very clearly physical sickness. And then Matthew tells us specifically that this is fulfilled in Isaiah 53 that talks about Christ dying in our place. So He did secure not just our spiritual healing, but our physical healing even if we may have to wait to the resurrection to receive it. But it's important. What Jesus did at the cross did secure our healing, even our resurrection healing that we will receive in our new glorified bodies is because of the cross. Now, it may be during this life, if it's God's will, that He will heal people. Even James 5 instructs the elders of the churches. Any of you among the sick? And then the people are instructed, call the elders and they will pray over you. If it's God's will, perhaps God will heal. So, let's, let's avoid both extremes and understand that there is healing in the cross. That was secured. And we may or may not receive it in this life. So again, I'm not going to be dogmatic, uh, but that may be Luke's hint uh, that because of what Jesus did on the ninth hour, uh, people are going to be healed. And I think it's also important to point out that God isn't just worried about our spiritual souls. God is worried about our whole bodies, our bodies, our minds, our souls. We are holistic people and God is concerned about all of us. So when we pray about some physical illness, let's not say, well, God's not worried about that. He's just worried about the spiritual. No, God is concerned about all of it. All of it relates to who we are. Well, this sets up what takes place. And then verse 2 says, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, first of all, notice that this man was lame from birth. He has a congenital condition which means he never walked. This man has never taken a single step in his life. 
when he was 10 months old or 12 months old or 14 months old, uh, his mom or dad didn't hold up his hands and say, okay, honey, you can do it now. You can do it. Stand up. Take your first steps. And when he did so, he wasn't cheered on because he never did that. Uh, when he was eight years old, he never ran to first base after he hit the ball. Never walked. Never ran. Never jumped rope with his friends. Never danced. He had to be carried his whole life. Notice very carefully, this is not a child. This is a man. And we're told in 4.22 that the man was over 40 years old. So for more than 40 years, he was carried wherever he had to go. And specifically here, we're told that he was carried to the temple. Whether he was carried by family or friends, we're not told but he had to be carried by somebody. Otherwise, he wouldn't get there. Now, notice that he's carried to the temple by the beautiful gates. Uh, many of the commentators talk about the beautiful gates. Um, as opposed to other gates, this gate was covered in bronze. And actually, it was more valuable than the gates that were covered with silver or gold. It was approximately 75 feet high. It had two huge doors. And as people walked into the temple... They would, they would see all this expense and they would see this poor beggar sitting there. And they would be moved to give him some money. But I think the focus is not just the beautiful gate, but the temple. Why would they carry him to the temple? Why, why that specific spot, the temple, right there by the beautiful gate? Because that's where the God-fearing people went to worship. I can still remember being a student at Moody, and you have to remember that I grew up in Lake in the Hills. And at the time, when I grew up in Lake in the Hills, we had 5,000 people as a population. It was a small little town. And then I go off to the big city. Um, Moody Bible Institute is right downtown. And I can still remember just walking with some of my friends downtown. And we would be bombarded by homeless people and beggars. Can you spare a dollar? Can you spare two dollars? Uh, please, in God's name, can you do the Christian thing? We would hear those kinds of things. And I learned very quickly, uh, I know what they're doing. They know that the school season is starting up again. You have these young freshmen coming in. They're walking the streets and they're a great target. But why are they a great target? Because Christian people are generous. And I'm going to say that again. Christian people are generous. Christians give far and above more than other people in the world. So he's put at the temple because Jews would go there. And also remember that Jews put a high premium on almsgiving. Even Jesus did. Jesus told his disciples, when you give alms. Not if you give alms, but when you give alms. Don't announce it and let everybody know what you're doing. Guess what I did this last week? No, keep it to yourself and God will reward you. Also notice that they laid him daily at the gate. Every single day he was put in the same spot. R.C. Sproul tells a really interesting story. He mentions that when he went to Holland uh, to work on a doctorate, 
Um, he was in one of the villages outside the city, and he would have to take the train into the city, and he would have to cross the bridge uh, to get to the Free University of Amsterdam where he was taking class. And he mentioned that every single day, as he crossed the bridge in the exact same spot, there was a beggar asking for money. And Sproul said he couldn't pass by without putting a few coins in his little cup or whatever it was that he held. Um, he went on to say that years later, he went back to Holland and he went down that same route that he did many years earlier when he was working on his doctorate and the same beggar was there in the same spot. And he also said that on that trip, he purchased a big picture book of Amsterdam and he said that as he was going through this big picture book, there was a picture of the bridge that he took every day and sure enough, there was the beggar right there in the picture that he had seen every day. In other words, this beggar had become a permanent fixture. This beggar right here at the same time, he was a permanent fixture. Not just day after day, week after week, month after month, but year after year, perhaps decade after decade, People would walk into the temple. There's the beggar. There's the beggar. There's the beggar. Everybody knew who he was. Lame from birth. They all knew who he was. And that will be very significant um, a little later in this passage. Verse 3 mentions seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. He asked to receive alms. Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Can you picture it? probably said it a thousand times a day as people... As people passed by, he would say his mantra, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, hoping to find some generous soul that would give him some money. Now, let me say at this point that I think we should be discerning when it comes to the poor. Um, there are the lazy poor and there are the legitimate poor. Uh, the lazy poor are those who are poor because they don't want to work. Uh, they are slothful uh, Proverbs says that poverty will come on them like a bandit because they're lazy. Instead of getting out of bed, they roll over like a door on its hinges. Those people are to be rebuked. On the other hand, we have the legitimate poor. And I say they're legitimately poor because they're poor because of circumstances beyond their control. Uh, they are lame, like this man here. He was not able to go out and work. Or they've been unemployed in our culture. They've been laid off because of downsizing. Um, and because of that, the bills have caught up to them. Uh, there are many reasons why people might be poor. Some are legitimate. Some are not. We are to exercise discernment here. Uh, the Bible distinguishes between two kinds of poor. And this is important because our culture often doesn't. Our culture often just lumps them all together and describes them as the poor without discerning which are lazy poor, which are legitimate poor which ones need to be rebuked and scolded, and which ones need the mercy and generosity of God's people. But in this passage, I think it's very clear that this man, lame from birth, is legitimate poor, and deserves the generosity of God's people. And looking for that generosity, he sets his sights on Peter and John. Verse 4 says, And Peter directed his gaze at him. That's important. Um, have you ever seen a, a beggar on the streets? And have you ever seen people walk past the beggar? 
What do they usually do with their eyes? If the beggar's over here, what do they do with their eyes? <laughs> right? Like, like he doesn't exist. Like he's not. Last thing you want to do is make eye contact, right? And I've had that situation, you know, pushy beggars, and I just I turn the other way. You know, please go away. You know? um, Peter and John look at him. So that's significant. Um, and then it says, they said, or Peter said, look at us. So they go the second step. Not only do they give him their gaze, but they say, look at us. And you know what this beggar did. He looked and said, okay, good. Oh, found some merciful souls that are going to help me out. Verse 6. But Peter said, and, and I don't know if he was going through his pockets, you know, I you know, I have no silver or gold. Can you just picture this guy's countenance? They gave me their eyesight. They told me to look at him. And then the first thing they say is, I have no silver or gold. You're wasting my time. You build up my hopes only to dash them down. Oh. But Peter wasn't done, was he? But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. Is that awesome or why? This just makes my spine tingle. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, this is one of these places in the Bible where I wish I had a few more verses. I want a little more explanation of, of what's going on here. Uh, was it that Peter and John were walking to the temple and they and they saw this beggar at his usual spot and they recognized him? Of course, they had seen him for years, but but this time they really felt compassion. And did Peter pray? Did he say, "Lord, I don't have any money. Is there something I can do for this man?" Lord, is there something? Did did he pray? We're not, we're not told that he prayed. Um, did Peter look at the man and see that he had faith to be healed? Uh, Turn ahead to Acts 14. It's kind of a parallel account with Paul. Acts 14, beginning at verse 8, we read this. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Sound familiar? He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, sound familiar? And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So I wonder, did, did Peter look at the man that day and, and see that he had faith to be healed? And there was faith involved. Look at Acts 3.16. And this is a little later in our passage, but it's still talking about the same man. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Uh, so we know that faith was involved. What we're not told is whether it was the faith of this cripple or the faith of Peter and John. We're not told, but there was faith. I also wonder, could it be, and, and again, I, I just wonder, could it be that Peter and John are walking along, they see this beggar, and the Holy Spirit gave them a word and said, heal that man. 
because this is fascinating as well. Uh, Peter does not pray for this lame man. He does not ask God to heal him. He pronounces or declares his healing in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So there is just a declaration. There's not a prayer. There's a declaration. Peter knew this man is healed. He needs to stand up. And I have to wonder, why did Peter know? We're not told. I wish we were told. Um, we'll be told in heaven. When we get to heaven, there'll be another one of those questions. Now, what happened right here? <laughs> what are the details? We don't know. Um, Luke doesn't tell us, which means God doesn't tell us. Because I guess that isn't the point. As much as I want to know a few more details, that's not the point. What is the point? The point is that there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. The point is that Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended on high. And He is still moving mightily through His apostles, through His people, so that lives can be transformed. Jesus Christ is still alive and well. And there is great power in His name. And everybody is going to be made aware of it pretty soon. Some are going to like it. Some are not going to like it. But there is great power in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, And Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. That's kind of a typical Peter thing, isn't it? Kind of like, you know, you're too slow. You know, come on, let's, let's, let's go. <laughs> Takes him by the right hand, lifts him up, and immediately, and remember, Luke was a physician, so as a doctor, he probably found this healing absolutely fascinating. Um, this is not a setup. You know, this is not a quote unquote, you know, healing service, and, you know, the quote unquote pastor has the plants, you know, and during the service, you know, he's going to go over and supposedly heal this man. No, this is the real deal. This man really was lame from birth and there were thousands upon thousands of people who could testify that this man was lame from birth. So he raises up immediately. His feet and ankles were made strong. And in talking to my kids about this passage this week, I said, imagine how skinny his legs must have been. They, they must have been like chicken legs. Because he had never walked on them. So his muscles and, and ligaments would, would have just atrophied to, to next to nothing. But we're told his feet and, and his ankles got strong. And, and I think perhaps you, you could see the muscle even building as it got strong. You knew it got strong because you could see the muscle developing so that it could support his body. And then we read verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Wow. I wonder what was going through his mind when he walked for the first time in over 40 years. His ankles, his feet, his legs were actually supporting him. So he began walking. But that wasn't good enough. And leaping. <laughs> Let's test these new legs out. <laughs> hey, they work pretty good. <laughs> Look at this. But he didn't stop there either. He went on to what? Praising God. And how do you think he was praising God? I think he was jumping up and down. I, I think he was excited beyond all belief. I would have been. Wouldn't you have been? 
praising God. Lord, thank you! This is awesome! He must have just been taken away with what God had done in his life. So he's praising God. And I like this. And he was entering the temple with them. But let's go worship together. That's what ministry is all about. Taking people who are part of the world, destitute, showing them the power of Jesus Christ. And said, now let's go worship together. What fun it is. You want, you want to bring all your friends here. Come worship with us. We don't want it just to be our family. We want to bring it. Come worship with us. It's so much more fun when we can do it together. Now there's a new worshiper in the temple. This lame man. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking alms. Again, this wasn't a plant. They recognized him. He had been there every single day. Just like the beggar that R.C. Sproul saw every single day and then years later they knew who he was. So they knew this was a genuine healing. God really had intervened in the life of this man. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Wow. What what has God done? They They were just... They were in awe because what they saw was awesome. And I know that word is overused in our culture, but in this situation, they really were awestruck. What they saw really was awesome, and they were trying to take it in and wonder what it meant. They didn't have silver and gold, but they had power in the name of Jesus. In the 13th century, the well-known Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas went to Rome and he visited Pope Innocent II. And as he was visiting the Pope, the Pope was counting a large sum of his money. And the, and the Pope was quite proud of all the money that the Catholic Church was acquiring. And the Pope said to Thomas Aquinas, he said, Thomas, no longer can the Church say, silver and gold I have not. And Thomas Aquinas shot back and he said, how true, Holy Father, but neither can the Church now say, rise and walk. Where has the power gone? What does church have to offer the world? Three simple points. Number one, healing that money can't buy. See, all the world has is money. And we live in a world, and you know this, just watch the politicians. Anytime there's a problem, the number one thing they say is, well, we need money and we need a program. Or they'll reverse the order. We need this program, now we need the money. Because money fixes everything, right? Money doesn't fix everything. Some marriages that haven't been fixed by money. Some lame people who haven't been fixed by money. Some addicts who haven't been cured because of money. And we need to realize that as the church of Jesus Christ, even if our funds are low, even if we're struggling to meet the budgets, in the name of Jesus Christ, we have something to offer the world. We can offer Jesus Christ who can transform their lives. And we need to be careful as the church. Because we can think, boy, if we just had some more money. We don't need money. We need the power of Jesus Christ. Money is secondary at best. Money cannot take away guilt. Money cannot buy eternal life. 
money cannot fill a soul with satisfaction. I believe it was Blaise Pascal who said, God has created man with a God-shaped void and He's trying to fill it with things. And it doesn't satisfy. Many of you know John D. Rockefeller was asked on one occasion, how much money would it take to make you happy? And he said those immortal words, just a little more. <laughs> just a little more. That, that's our whole culture. If I had just a little more money, just a little bit bigger house, just a little bit newer car, just a few more shoes in the closet, just a few more Game Boys, just a few more whatever, then I would be happy. Probably not. Because it's not going to fill your soul. Only God can do that. And the church has that. And we need to remember that we have the message that the world wants, even if they don't know that we have the message they want. But that's the message that we can take to them. What else do we have to offer? Joy. Joy. Psalm 4-7. Very worthy of memorizing it. Uh, the psalmist said, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Great verse in an um, agrar- agrarian culture. When the harvest came in and they had lots of grain, that was Christmas Day for them. That was winning the lottery. That, that was the big celebration. We have all this grain and, and now we can have food and now we can make wine and they would have parties and they would celebrate. That was their greatest joy. And the psalmist says, You, God, have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine... They think they have joy. I have a joy that they've never tasted. They've never experienced the joy that I have. A joy that comes from being at your right hand. I have this joy. And we have that joy to offer the world. But before we offer, offer it to the world, can I give you one caveat? Make sure the world sees this joy in your life. It really would be better if they asked you, why are you so happy all the time? Rather than telling them, you know, you could be a lot happier. <laughs> let them see your joy. Uh, let your light shine before men so that they would ask you, why are you so happy? Why are you so content? Why do you seem so satisfied? Why are you at peace? What is it that you have? And then you could say, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Let's get together for lunch or dinner sometime. <laughs> and what else does the church have to offer the world? Wonder. Wonder. Isn't it great how this passage ends? They were filled with wonder. Our transformed lives are a wonder to the world. I can still remember just a few years after I became a Christian, I got together with one of my uh, before Christian friends um, who I partied with. And he asked me, point blank, are you happier now than how you used to be when you were partying? Are you happier now? You see what he was saying? It was a blunt question. What makes you happier Christianity, Jesus Christ, or drugs and alcohol? Which is it? He just he, he wanted to know. I don't know why he was so blunt, why he asked me, but he, he wanted to know. And I hope in part, because he was just standing in wonderment of what had happened to his friend Wayne. What had gotten a hold of him? Why is he so different? 
And it would be great if people could see that in our lives. And it's not just when God works miracles, when we are delivered, when we are healed. Um, It also can be when God says no to healing, but yes to grace. Almost always, when I pray for people who need healing, I often think, um, if not, if not all, always, almost always, Second Corinthians 12, where Paul prays that God would take away his thorn in the flesh. And he prays three times and God says, nope, 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 not going to do it. Not going to do it. We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. People speculate. We don't know exactly what it was, but we do know this for sure. It was tormenting him. It was painful. It was bothering him. And God said no to the deliverance, but He did say yes to grace. But my grace is sufficient for you. And wouldn't it be great that even if we weren't healed, even if we never got out of the wheelchair again, even if we were never cured of cancer, people could see the joy of the Lord in us. People could see that we are at peace. That we are content. And they would say, how is it that you have that in light of your condition? How can that be? And we could tell them. And maybe God would use that to bring them to Jesus Christ so that they could have their lives transformed. And then maybe, just maybe, who knows, they may join you, they may join me on some Sunday and worship with us. Wouldn't that be great? Let's close the Father, we thank You for the power that is in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, there is tremendous power there. Father, I pray for every person in this room, myself included, would You open our eyes and help us to see this power. Even for those of us who have experienced this power to some level, we truly don't understand it. How can finite human beings truly understand omnipotence, all power. Father, help us to see that You want to work in our lives. Father, so often we think You don't. So often we become very pessimistic and discouraged in our witnessing. And we are hindered from witnessing. Father, forgive us. Father, help us to see what we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to see that we have what the world desperately needs even though they don't know it. And Father, help us to bring it to them regardless of the cost. Regardless of how it would be accepted. Father, use us. Help us to do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.